Hello everyone, welcome back to Atomic Hobo. This is the first of a two-part look at Kaliningrad, which is the latest thing the Russians are trying to stir up trouble about. So we're going to look at the history of Kaliningrad, how was it created, and why is it potentially causing some trouble now. Firstly, it is an exclave. Some news outlets are calling it an enclave, but uh, it is an exclave. That is, it's a piece of Russia which is geographically separate from Russia. If you were going by land uh, from Russia, you would have to travel, depending on your route, through Belarus and Lithuania. So it is not physically connected to Russia in any way. Or if you're up in St. Petersburg, you would perhaps go south through all three of the Baltic states to get there. So you see the problem. Previously, in the Soviet era, there was no question of Russian access being a problem because these countries were all part of the gigantic USSR. But now, of course, Lithuania is an independent state and is a member of the EU. And so it has begun to impose restrictions on Russia's land access to Kaliningrad. Previously, Russia had been using rail links going through Belarus and Lithuania to reach the exclave of Kaliningrad. But Lithuania say that in order to abide by the EU sanctions against Russia, they will need to now partially forbid access across their territory. Russia has uh, warned of serious consequences and that they will, quote, certainly respond to such hostile actions. So, in a nutshell, that is the reason why you're hearing about Kaliningrad suddenly in the news. Russia can no longer um, simply charge through Belarus and Lithuania to get to that piece of its territory. Of course, they can get there by air or by sea, but uh, if they want to stir up grievance and trouble, then they will focus on land access. Now, Kaliningrad isn't just a little fragment of Russia, a funny, forgotten, random little piece of land. It is strategically important. It is, in fact, the headquarters of Russia's Baltic fleet, although The Economist have referred to it recently as the antiquated Baltic fleet. Nonetheless, it's obviously important for Russia. Kaliningrad um, also gives the Russian Navy that rare thing, which is a port which doesn't freeze in winter. Kaliningrad's also a good position for defence against the West. Turning to The Economist again, they tell us that Kaliningrad is studied with radar systems which provide aerial surveillance of Central Europe. The region also received a long-range missile defence system from Russia in 2012 and in 2016 it got the short-range Iskander missile system which can, in theory, be equipped with nukes. But even with those advantages, uh, Kaliningrad, it would seem, is nothing to shout about. It's uh, small, about the size of Northern Ireland, and it's been described in The Guardian as, quote, a hellhole. And back in 2001, an article in the same paper described it as, quote, poverty-ridden, disease-rich, heavily polluted and crime-infested. Neither is it aesthetically pleasing, having been practically bombed to dust during the war, and then further pulled apart in the post-war period by its new Soviet owners who brought down some historic old buildings that survived and 
carted the bricks off to rebuild Leningrad, building Soviet concrete blocks in their place. Justin Webb, uh, reporting from Leningrad after the end of the Cold War, said uh, of these Soviet blocks, its ugliness is breathtaking. So let us go back in time and find out how Kaliningrad was created. How this little bit of Russia came to find itself uh, cut off from the motherland, sandwiched between Poland, Lithuania and Belarus. So we need to go back to the Cold War. In fact, no, we need to go back to the Second World War. In fact, no, even further, we need to go back to the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles. That is the unending unfurling of history. You have to keep going back and back and back to get to the actual root of the thing. In fact, if I'd gone back any further than Versailles, I'd have found myself back to the Teutonic Knights and then back beyond that, in fact, back to the age of dinosaurs. And you'd have had an episode called Pterodactyls. Were they dinos or birds? And what was their role in the creation of Kaliningrad? So let's go back to... 1919 and the Treaty of Versailles. I first learned about the Treaty of Versailles at school and the main thing I learned was that it was responsible for the rise of Hitler and therefore the Second World War and therefore the Cold War and the nuclear threat that we all live under. It can all be traced back to that damn treaty, which, without going too deep into it, infuriated and humiliated Germany. Germany had lost the First World War, as we know, and the treaty was there to to correct some wrongs, but really to punish Germany. It caused them to give up territory forced them to pay zillions in reparations, compelled them to disarm. But the main thing that our teacher drummed into us was the treaty's so-called war guilt clause. The treaty contained a statement which blamed Germany for everything. Now, let's not get into the rights and wrongs of that. I couldn't even if I wanted to. I'm not an expert on on the Great War. But all we need to know is that There were plenty of people in Weimar, Germany, who were furious about the the supposed injustice of the treaty, which forced Germany to pay out and take the blame for everything. And uh, there were many in Germany who built themselves a political career by stamping and roaring about the injustice of the Treaty of Versailles, and who lured plenty of voters to them by promising to overturn it and right all the terrible wrongs and humiliations that Germany had suffered. But there were sensible voices at the time, such as the British economist John Maynard Keynes, who warned, whoa, these terms are too harsh. This is just piling up trouble for the future. He called the Treaty of Versailles a Carthaginian peace, meaning, and I admit that I had to Google this, meaning a peace which is uh, a bit vicious, uh, brutal, intended to strip your enemy. But there were others, particularly the French, uh, who said the treaty hadn't gone far enough. Punish them more, more. So really, no one was happy with the Treaty of Versailles. 
it's too harsh, it's not harsh enough, and left a hell of a lot of Germans raging and humiliated and all too receptive, perhaps, when a guy called Adolf Hitler came along and said, well, I'll get rid of it for you. Now, the Versailles Treaty is relevant to Kaliningrad because one of the territorial changes it imposed on Germany was that they give Poland access to the Baltic Sea. Borders were being shifted and redrawn after the war and it was agreed in the treaty that Poland needed a a corridor to be cut through Germany, allowing them access to the Baltic Sea. It needed this so that they could trade, of course, using ports on the Baltic coast. Without cutting a corridor through Germany to allow Poland to reach the Baltic coast, the Poles argued that they couldn't truly be independent as they'd forever be dependent on Germany allowing them access. And in the fevered period of 1919, who could trust Germany? After all, hadn't they just signed a treaty taking the blame for everything, ever? Weren't they potentially aggressive and hostile and angry? No, the argument went that Poland needed unfettered access to the Baltic and so a corridor was cut through Germany connecting Poland to the Baltic Sea. This was known as the Polish Corridor. But it meant that a bit of Germany had been cut off from the rest of the country. This bit that was cut off was uh, East Prussia, whose capital was the city of Königsberg, and it now found itself detached from the rest of Germany, cut off by this Polish corridor. And yes, that detached bit of Germany, Königsberg, is now Kaliningrad, and it's now Russian, but (laughs) we'll get to that. So Poland now had access to the Baltic Sea, and Germany had... Yet another thing to complain and seethe about. Another thing to add to their big list of reasons we are humiliated and disgruntled. So as we moved into the 1920s, how did the Polish corridor actually work? I mean, how did it work for Germany, practically? How did the people in Königsberg and any goods get to and from the rest of Germany? Well, they could go by sea, they could go out into the Baltic and take a ferry to the rest of the German mainland. Indeed, a ferry company was set up for this purpose, to keep Königsberg connected. It was called, uh, sorry about my German pronunciation, it was called the Seedienst Ostpreußen. And this ferry service kept running until September 1939. After which, of course, the Germans suddenly found it a lot easier to move through Poland. You could also travel across the Polish corridor by train. These train journeys across the corridor had to be done in sealed carriages. And this allowed Germans to zip across the Polish corridor and across Polish territory without having to worry about passports and customs checks, etc. This is quite a common thing. Um, Probably the most famous example of a sealed train being allowed to quickly zip through another country's territory was the situation in Berlin when trains would pass from east to west Berlin after the wall went up. There were some stations uh, known as ghost stations in Berlin at which the train, uh, you couldn't alight, the train would just speed through the eastern sector and its ghost stations without stopping. So trains would uh, pass through the Polish corridor 
But this still didn't solve Germany's grievance. Sure, they could travel by ferry, and sure, they could go by train, but that didn't make up for their sense of injustice at having a bit of their country severed and separated by Poland. And so, arguments, complaints, protests flared up at the slightest provocation. One of the worst incidents uh, happened in 1925 when a German train journeying through the corridor crashed and killed 25 people, including two children. Here is an extract from Time magazine about the crash and how the Germans and the Poles sought to blame the other. In the unseeing night, a train steamed across the Polish corridor on its way from Berlin to East Prussia. Between the German town of Stargard and the Polish town of Dirschau, the engine ran off the tracks. The two front coaches telescoped. The remainder of the train, except the two last coaches, toppled over a 20-foot embankment. 25 persons, including 12 women and two children, were killed. Some 30 others were injured. When morning came, it was discovered that the spikes had been removed from the tracks for a short distance and the fish plates unbolted. Thereupon, the Germans accused the Polish of mismanagement, charged that the incident was indirectly due to the Versailles Treaty, bewailed the fact that Germans had to entrust their safety to, quote, Polish management, a German term meaning mismanagement. They held that the Polish boundary must be revised so as to join East Prussia with the Fatherland. The Poles, conversely, charged the accident to the Communists, or the Germans who wished to point out the impossibility of maintaining the Polish corridor. So not happy with ferry and rail access, the Germans started demanding road access through the Polish corridor. They proposed building one of their famous autobahns which would connect Berlin with Konigsberg. Indeed, in the late 30s, they built the Berlin section and they built the Konigsberg section. The only problem was the, the bit in between, which would have involved building through the corridor, through Polish territory, and creating an extra-territorial road that is one not governed by local laws. Basically, what Hitler was demanding was a corridor be cut through the corridor. The Poles said no. And this was yet another thing for the German warmongers of the 30s to seize upon. The angry German autobahn was never completed, but some bits of it, uh, the bits which did exist, were incorporated into local road networks and other stretches just went unused. The Soviets in the post-war era gave this uh, strange road the nickname Berlinka, and uh, Wikipedia tells me that due to stretches of the road being almost unused, these uh, parts of the Berlinka were often chosen during the Cold War as filming locations. So the Germans were furious about the Polish corridor, and to cut a long story short, the Second World War happened. <laughs> now, <laughs> that sentence covers quite a lot, but I think it will have to do, because if we dwell on the war... We will be here forever. And we do need to try to get forward in time to Cold War Kaliningrad, how it came to be. So let's just go with the Second World War happened. And uh, Konigsberg, that isolated bit of Germany, 
was battered hard by British bombing in 1944. Much of the lovely old city was destroyed, including its cathedral and its castle. And then, in 1945, as the war was ending, the Soviets reached the city, what was left of it, and began their own terrible assault. One reason why the attack on Konigsberg was so ferocious relates to Amber. Now let me tell you this story. A fantastically elaborate room made mostly of amber was built in Prussia in the 18th century and it was installed in the Royal Palace of Berlin. Now look this thing up on Google. It's called the Amber Room. Maybe you've heard of it already. It's It's spectacular. It was known as the eighth wonder of the world. Although I know that nickname's been attached to a lot of things, but certainly the Amber Room was breathtaking. It was panelled in the the dull, spicy gold of amber and crammed with mirrors and chandeliers and gems and elaborate cornicing. It is off-the-scale luxury. It makes the, the Palace of Versailles look like a new-build house with live, laugh, love on the wall. Now, the spectacular Amber Room in Berlin, was given to Russia as a gift to Peter the Great, who came to the city and admired it. He had it dismantled and installed in a palace back home in St. Petersburg. When it was finally arranged in its new home in Russia, it was estimated to contain six tonnes of amber. Well, during the war, when the Wehrmacht reached St. Pete, at that point, of course, Leningrad, they said... Oh, there's the Amber Room. Yoink, we're taking that back home with us. The Russians, of course, had anticipated that, so they had tried to disguise the unmistakable Amber Room by covering it in cheap wallpaper. They couldn't, or they didn't dare risk dismantling it and hiding it because it was so delicate by this point. So they tried to mask it with wallpaper, but the Germans couldn't be fooled. They found it and... uh, Regardless of any worries about damage, they dismantled it and took it back to Germany, where it was taken to Konigsberg and reassembled inside the city's castle. And no one knows what happened to the famous Amber Room after that. Was it destroyed when the RAF bombed the castle? Was it destroyed when the Soviets had a go at Konigsberg in 1945? Did the Germans succeed in smuggling it out only to have it destroyed elsewhere? Or does it still exist somewhere? There are plenty of theories if you want to learn more about the Amber Room. But uh, one theory is that Konigsberg was particularly badly treated by the Soviets as a special form of revenge because the Nazis had dragged a lot of stolen artworks and treasure from Russia and intended for Konigsberg's castle to be a glittering display case of a lot of the Russian loot. According to Martin Gilbert's book, uh, The Second World War, A Complete History, Hitler said, quote, I must do something for Konigsberg. I shall build a museum in which we shall assemble all we've found in Russia. So perhaps Konigsberg was so badly treated by the Soviets because the city itself was intended to be an example after the war of a, a celebration of Russia's artistic and cultural desecration. But no one knows what happened to the Amber Room and Konigsberg was absolutely battered. 
When the Allied powers met at Potsdam in August 1945 to agree the shape of post-war Europe, it was agreed that Russia could have Königsberg. And so it was no longer a, a little chunk of Germany, but suddenly it was part of the massive Soviet Union, where it would be part of the Russian Soviet Republic, even though it was physically connected to Belarus, Lithuania, it would be part of the Russian Soviet Republic. And in July 1946, its name was changed to Kaliningrad, named after one of the Bolshevik leaders, Mikhail Kalinin, who had died the previous month. In true Stalinist fashion, most of the remaining German population were deported and the region flooded with Russian speakers. Having adjusted the language and ethnicity of the population to suit their tastes, the Soviet leaders of the new Kaliningrad began physically changing the place to make it look more Russian. A task which was made easier, of course, by the British and Soviet bombing during the war. So with much of German architecture either bombed or knocked down in post-war reconstruction, Soviet concrete took its place. Kaliningrad had been made to look and feel and sound Russian, and with the emerging post-war order, it was now surrounded by communist states. No longer the need to worry about corridors and access and sealed train carriages. It was now amongst friends. Warsaw packed Poland to one side, and the Soviet republics of Belarus and Lithuania on the other. Everything lovely and snug and warm behind the Iron Curtain. No problems for Kaliningrad, as long as everything stays uh, nicely communist. And then the Soviet Union collapsed. And next week we will look at post-war Kaliningrad. I hope you liked that episode, slightly off the normal nuclear war track there of course, but we will get back to that with part two about Kaliningrad. Remember, if you like the podcast and would like to support it with a donation each month, please look at my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobel. And let me thank my newest patron, Andrew Gorton. Thank you for signing up, Andrew. And David Daly, thank you for increasing your monthly pledge. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or at my website, juliemcdowell.com. And I'll be back next week with part two of our Kaliningrad story.